Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I'm David Lim. It is Monday the 14th of September. As evidence mounts for the use of vitamin D in the prevention and treatment of COVID-19, it is important for GPs to understand how to use these evidence at the cold phase to benefit our patients, especially those at high risk of vitamin D deficiency. To sift through the information and learn more about this topic, I will be speaking with Professor Peter Ebley. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for the next webcasts, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. In today's podcast, we will take another look at vitamin D deficiency, both in the prevention and treatment of COVID-19. I will be speaking with Professor Peter Ebling. Professor Ebling, can you please tell us a little about yourself? Hi, I'm the head of the Department of Medicine at Monash University. I'm also medical director of Osteoporosis Australia and on the board of the International Osteoporosis Foundation. Peter, in a very recent Spanish study, a metabolite of vitamin D, calcifidiol, was given to patients with COVID-19 and the outcomes were admissions to ICU and death. Can you tell us more about this study and the results? Yes, well, I think um, what we've all been waiting for is our data from randomised control trials of vitamin D in COVID-19. So this was the first of those studies um, that was uh, reported and it was just reported very recently. Now, they used a metabolite of vitamin D, not vitamin D that you buy um, at a pharmacy over the counter. So it was the metabolite that's made in the liver, 25-hydroxyvitamin D. And the reason for doing that is that um, this metabolite then increases the levels of vitamin D in the blood very quickly. Mm. So uh, that's a, a more efficient way of doing it. And uh, so when they did that in a hospital in, in Spain, they found that of the patients treated with calcifidiol, uh, the numbers uh, requiring admission to ICU, there were 13 that required admission when they weren't given calcifidiol and only one in the patients that were given this uh, form of vitamin D. So when they did a multivariate analysis, there was a very uh, substantial effect of a 97% reduction in ICU admissions. And interestingly, of all the patients treated with calcifidiol, none died and all were discharged without complications. And of the 13 patients not treated with calcifidiol who went to ICU, uh, two died and the 11 were discharged. So nobody died in the group that was given calcifidiol as well, but obviously the numbers are quite small. So this is really a pilot study showing that uh, calcifidiol uh, significantly reduced ICU admission. Uh, 
uh, and also uh, the severity of the disease, which is what we've been thinking from the association studies uh, that have come out more recently. Let me get this right. Both the patients given uh, calcifidiol and not were both treated to protocol. So it's not as if one wasn't treated in any way. They were both treated to pro protocol. One randomized group had the vitamin D metabolite. Is that right? Yes, they all had the, um, the best standard of care. So the only difference really was um, whether or not they were given this vitamin D metabolite calcifidiol. So they've done the analysis and corrected for all the multivariates uh, like hypertension, uh, type 2 diabetes and sex and age. And still there's a benefit even in this small pilot study. It, the numbers are very small, but the difference seems huge. Yes, um, and obviously this is a pilot study that's leading on to a much larger study. Mm. With the randomization, uh, there was a, a two-to-one randomization to the active drug or uh, no drug, yeah. I really look forward to a bigger study because it just sounds so exciting. Yes, it seems to have had a, a major benefit. The other interesting thing is that we keep getting these observational studies. There's been one from Israel and one from uh, Milan that was just presented uh, yesterday morning at the American Society of Bone and Mineral Research. Uh -huh. And uh, this uh, Milan study uh, was looking at, um, I think, just over 100 patients uh, and their course uh, through admission. Uh, and then they looked at ICU admissions and uh, mortality. And adjusting, again, for many uh, variables, they found uh, that the patients who uh, were vitamin D deficient had a level less than 50 nanomoles per litre, had a 6% increased risk of going to ICU and an 18% increased risk of mortality. So uh, there's another um, study from Israel which shows uh, that the risk of getting COVID-19 is also increased uh, if uh, you're vitamin D deficient. Now, what was that level you mentioned again? Was that 50? Yeah, so in the study from Italy, the level was 50 uh, nanomoles per litre. Mm -hmm. And how would we regard that level in Australia? Well, that's uh, what we um, are aiming for as an optimal level of vitamin D. So we, we would say that people between 25 and 50 had mild vitamin D deficiency and uh, below 25 would be moderate vitamin D deficiency and below 12.5 would be severe vitamin D deficiency. Do you know of any other studies, uh, Peter, that backs up what you're saying and had said for a long time now that there is a very strong role for vitamin D in COVID-19? Yes, so I think um, the other study uh, was uh, the Israeli studies I mentioned. Um, and I think there they were looking at a low um, vitamin D level of below 75 nanomoles per litre. Uh, and uh, this was uh, a study of about 782 COVID-19 patients. And uh, the mean uh, vitamin D level um, was lower among those that were um, pos positive for COVID-19. So, um, they demonstrated an association between the low uh, vitamin D level and an increased likelihood of COVID-19 infection of about 1.6 and also of hospitalization, uh, a double uh, doubling of the risk for hospitalization with a low vitamin D level below 75 nanomoles per litre. So I think what we're having is a lot of circumstantial evidence. Uh. 
there's also evidence from the UK, um, and as you know, they've had a, a high burden of COVID-19. And one of the sad things there, I think, is the mortality rate amongst uh, black uh, people living in the UK is fivefold uh, compared with uh, the white people living in the UK. And part of the reason for that is it could be associated with a low vitamin D level. Now, in that particular Israeli study, you mentioned a figure of 75. I think a lot of people don't get anywhere near that in Australia. No, I think probably from your practice in mind that um, people are more closely hovering around the 50, I suppose. Mm. <laughs> there might be uh, a benefit of getting to 75 because we think the benefits for bone and muscle are around about 60 or 75. So that, that is good for bone and muscle as well. But um, all these um, infective aspects are probably requiring that higher level of 75 nanomoles per litre to target. But I think most people um, uh, and the guidance we have provided internationally from the organisations I'm involved with is that um, it's been recommended that people get outside for 15 to 30 minutes in the sunshine. Uh-huh. And, and uh, when people can't do that, um, that they should take vitamin D supplements. And that's also been the guidance of the UK government. Uh, they've recommended that all people take vitamin D supplements in the UK in winter and spring. But it hasn't been the guidance of the Australian government. Do you know why that is? I think uh, they've been obviously uh, very preoccupied with trying to uh, reduce uh, the spread of COVID-19 and uh, testing and uh, contact tracing. And uh, they've been Mm -hmm. focusing on those areas, which are very good epidemiological ways to reduce the the transmission of (laughs) COVID-19. But I think the other important thing is maybe to reduce the risk of um, getting it by making sure you have uh, a normal vitamin D level and they sort of haven't been interested in that because they've said, well, we haven't got evidence from randomised control trials. But really, uh, if we wait for those, uh, the, uh, the horse will have bolted. So I think the other thing is that vitamin D is very safe and I don't think there's anything to be lost. There might be a benefit to muscles and bones and it might also reduce your risk of getting COVID-19. Mm, I, I hear you very loudly, Peter. I'm just surprised because one of the groups that are highest at the highest risk and i'm referring to the elderly in residential aged care facilities we know that their vitamin d levels are not particularly high anyway and and that it seems wise if we consider sgps prescribing vitamin d for these particular types of patients well i agree with you david and i think everybody in an aged care institution should be on vitamin d in fact uh, that's been mandated for several years in south australia Um, uh, because uh, of the trial that showed the combination of calcium and vitamin D was very effective at reducing hip fractures and non-vertebral fractures in people in institutionalised care. So they went onto the front foot several years ago, um, 15 or so years ago, and uh, make sure that everybody living in an aged care home in South Australia has calcium and vitamin D. But that hasn't been the case in other states. But it'd be interesting to see if... um, some aged care homes in Victoria had a policy of giving their residents vitamin D and others may not have, and whether there was a difference in mm. the number of cases of COVID-19 mm. uh, in those two groups of aged care facilities. I, I heard you about South Australia, but I also wonder, Peter, just listening to the, uh, if you like, the amount of 75, 50 to 75 being what we need, 
the amounts that we actually prescribe may not actually get us to, to those high levels. Yeah, well, I think uh, we've got to think about uh, what dose we need. And uh, we did a study looking at that target level, a randomised control trial. But we were looking at um, overweight and obese people. And on average, they needed 4,000 units a day. Mm-hmm. But I think most people who aren't overweight or obese would probably need uh, 1,000 or 2,000 units a day to achieve uh, those levels, probably <clears throat> more like 2,000 units a day to, to get up to 75, but most would get above 50 with 1,000 units a day. So it would be wise if GPs who have patients in aged care facilities to prescribe at least 1,000, if not 2,000 every day. I agree. I, I think that'd be a very sensible thing and you haven't got anything really to lose. Mm. And hopefully the patient can take uh, medications adequately. That would be the only difficult thing, I suppose. Are all vitamin Ds created equal? Probably not. Uh, There is um, a form of vitamin D from plants, which is called ergocalciferol rather than cholecalciferol, and that's also known as vitamin D2. Uh, And it probably doesn't elevate the uh, serum 25D as, uh, as much as giving vitamin D3 or cholecalciferol. But in Australia, the major form of vitamin D we have is vitamin D3. So it's not really a concern so much in Australia. I think, I think margarine might be fortified with low doses of vitamin D2. But generally, we have vitamin D3 or cholecalciferol in Australia as a supplement. Peter, do you have any other messages to the listeners regarding vitamin D and COVID-19? No, I think uh, just what I've said before, we could summarise that there's probably no harm in recommending uh, 1,000 or 2,000 units a day of vitamin D to your patients who are at risk of vitamin D deficiency. We've been concentrating on people in aged care, but it would also obviously uh, include people with pigmented skin um, and those that cover their skin for cultural reasons or avoid the sun for cultural reasons. Uh, And there might be people who are on anti-epileptic medications that increase the metabolism of vitamin D as well. So these are some of the groups where we just recommend giving them vitamin D. Don't worry about measuring their vitamin D levels. That's relatively expensive. And it's much better to take a pragmatic approach and treat these people with vitamin D, I think. Thank you so much, Peter. It's my pleasure, David. Have a good day and keep safe. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.